0: Now, verse 9, When he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now he had spent 40 days with them after his resurrection, ministering to them, talking to them about the things of the kingdom, you know, giving them further instruction. Now, Luke tells us he went as far as Bethany, which is on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And from this point now he is going to ascend back up into heaven. We see it right here as he begins to ascend up into the clouds out of their sight. And while they look steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Who are these two guys? Angels, right? Two angels. Who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven don't read that too quickly there's some very important things there okay this same who jesus why do you think the holy spirit made it a point to say that well that was his name right but why didn't he say this same christ see the holy spirit would have led the two angels to say to the apostles this same Christ who you have seen go and so on and so forth well that would give rise to theology like the the new age movement has you know the Christ spirit they believe that there is a Christ spirit that is incarnated into various avatars various people that this Christ spirit embodies Buddha uh, had was uh... was in, in dwelt with this Christ spirit and of course they believe Jesus was in fact Jesus was the, was the Messiah or the avatar for the, uh, for the Piscean age. But there is coming another who will be indwelt with the Christ Spirit for the coming age, the new age, the age of Aquarius. And we even heard songs uh, along those lines back in, what, the 60s, I think? <laughs> showing my age, but yeah. And so there have been people who have believed in this for many, many years. But the Holy Spirit wants you to know that it's not the Christ Spirit That gets incarnated into various human bodies, it is this same Jesus that you saw go will come how? In like manner. Jesus Christ is coming again. Turn to Matthew chapter 24, in verse 23, Jesus is talking to his disciples just a few days before his crucifixion. And he says in verse 23, Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also, will be the, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. I'm going to light up the sky with my second coming glory. Every eye is going to see me. As I have gone into the clouds, from the clouds I will come back again. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus did come. He's already here, but he came Secretly into a secret chamber well what did jesus say in matthew 24 if they say to you come look he's in the secret chamber what do you do don't even bother it's not me see when you read your bible and you just see what god has said it keeps you from being deceived the truth will set you free the truth will set you free from error from from spiritual deception if you just know your bible really well the devil can't really slip the counterfeit or the lies past you okay Jesus Christ is coming again. The same Jesus that ascended from the Mount of Olives is going to come back again. And you know what? He is going to come and touch that same Mount of Olives. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, talking about Christ's return, it says, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley half of the mountains shall move toward the north and half of it shall move toward the south they tell me that there is a fault that runs right through the mount of olives and guess whose foot is going to cause it to split right wide open jesus he left from the mount of olives that's where bethany was he's going to return touch that same mount it will cleave in two and the righteous will walk through that valley up to the golden gate which is the gate that Messiah will enter into, is he walks into Jerusalem, declares himself king, and establishes his kingdom. Awesome. So this same Jesus is going to come again. Make no mistake about it. Verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey, about two-thirds of a mile. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room. Now, they were staying in this upper room. You say, well, who? Well, there were Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealots, Judas, the son of James, all of these who are apostles, and maybe some others were up in the upper room. What upper room? Probably, well, we don't know this for sure, I'm assuming, though, the same upper room that they ate the Passover meal with the Lord On the night before his crucifixion you say well why were they in this upper room why why were they all hanging out here they had homes why didn't they go home well because of what Jesus commanded in Luke chapter 24 verse 49 he said before he ascended back to his father he said look behold I am sending the promise of my father upon you which is the Holy Spirit but go and wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high you know the gospel. I've taught it to you for three and a half years. You're not ready to preach it yet. You haven't got the power. You go back to Jerusalem. You wait there until the promise I've given you from my Father comes, the Holy Spirit, who will baptize you, empower you for service, and then you can go into all the world and be witnesses for me, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So they gather there in the upper room, and they were there, from the time Jesus ascended back to his Father until the day of Pentecost, how many days? Ten days. Ten days. Pente, Pentecost means 50. Fifty days after the Feast of Firstfruits. When did Jesus rise from the dead? Sunday, the Feast of Firstfruits. He rose from the dead, spent 40 more days with them, talking about the things of the kingdom, ascended back to his Father, which meant there was ten days left to Pentecost. So they were in the upper room ten days, Seeking him, praying, and notice it says in verse fourteen, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. These all continued with uh, in one accord with prayer in prayer and supplication with the women. Who were these women? No doubt the women that accompanied Jesus on his earthly ministry. There was like two or three Marys. There was Salome. Uh, there was probably some others who uh, probably made meals, uh, you know, uh, patched up garments that had been ripped and so on. They just kind of uh, ministered to the apostles as they were out ministering with the Lord. so he had a, quite an entourage, and some were women, of course, and so these women were in the upper room with and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. A few things that we need to see here first of all. We see the keys, two keys, to God's blessings being poured out upon our lives. First of all, they continued in one accord. They continued in one accord. It means with single purpose of mind, or in other words, in unity. They continued in unity. How important is that? Well, that was the very thing Jesus prayed the night before his crucifixion to his Father in John 17 he said father I pray that they might be one even as we are one that they also might be one with each other that was his final prayer to his father before he went to the cross the thing that was probably weighing most heavy on his heart that his followers would be one with each other that they would continue in unity here we see it here we see it and not only unity but they continued in what prayer two things those two keys were the prelude to Pentecost. You know, I'm convinced that much of the power that's lacking in the church today is due to those two things. Instead of being in unity with each other, which is what the Lord Jesus prayed that we would be in, there's divisions, there's fighting, there are struggles for power, the church is fractured, it's not one. I thank God for the unity in our church. There have been some who have tried to come and divide the body, and they have peeled some away for themselves even as Paul the Apostle said there are going to come wolves among you not sparing the flock and also from among your own people people will rise up uh, from your group speaking perverse things trying to draw disciples away to themselves so it, it happens but I'm thankful overall for the unity and I believe that as long as we focus on Jesus and make him the issue realize that we're nothing it's not about me it's not about my recognition. It's not about who sees what I'm doing in my position of authority. It's, it's all about him. I'm just a servant. I'm really nothing. If I can do anything for the Lord in, in his service, I'm, I'll be happy to do anything. If that's the attitude, there's going to be unity. And you couple that with consistent, continuous prayer, you have a prelude for a Pentecost in any church or in any life you find that kind of unity among husbands and wives and they're praying together that's powerful there's going to be power in that marriage there's going to be blessing it's when we're divided against each other and we're not in prayer i'll tell you this it's usually when we're not in prayer that we do get divided against each other because if we're really in prayer i'm telling you right now there'll be a lot more unity I've, I've shared this statistic let me just share it one more time I heard that back in like 1871 there was only one divorce for every 1,000 marriages in the church and the reason for that is that couples were praying to about that ratio 1,000 to 1 1,000 couples praying together for every one that wasn't and I really believe that that's the thing that holds marriages together that holds churches together praying and being in unity with each other Both, we see here, were a prelude to Pentecost. But something else I want you to see here. These were continuing with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. This is the last time that Mary is mentioned in the New Testament. And I feel I need to say a few things because of how Mary has been exalted in some churches to a place even where some are calling her co-savior and co-redeemer with Christ. Now, because some in the church have gone to that extreme with Mary, some of us who are evangelicals want to go the other way. And we want to put Mary down. I think both are wrong. Mary was an incredible young woman. She was only about 15 or 16 when the angel Gabriel appeared to her and told her that she had been chosen by God to be the mother of the Messiah. Do you realize that every Jewish girl dreamed of being the mother of the Messiah? And here this young woman was singled out by God to become the mother of the Messiah. She was just a young gal, but she was already a great woman of virtue, even at this tender age. Because here the angel says that you are going to be impregnated by the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be impregnated with the seed of God, with the Messiah... You will have no human contact. No one will have a physical contact or sexual intercourse with you, but God is going to impregnate you into your womb—the very seed of God, the very person of the Messiah. Now she realized at that young age that she was going to take a lot of heat for being pregnant without a husband. In that culture, it was a—it was an, you know—it was a social suicide to be to become pregnant without a husband. Plus, here's this young woman who just basically says, "Well." I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be done unto me according to your word. I'm, I'm his. If he wants to use me this way, I'm all his. I will do whatever my Lord wants me to. So she was an incredible woman. But we have to keep her in the right place. Here, they are praying with Mary. They are not praying to Mary. In fact, we don't even see her name mentioned anymore throughout the entire New Testament which is a silent but powerful testimony to the fact that the church did not exalt Mary. If she was exalted by the church and they offered her prayers and things, we would have seen it. It would have been encouraged by Paul and Peter and the other uh, New Testament writers that we were to pray to Mary. We see nothing. In fact, it seems like our Savior went out of his way not to put his mother down, but just not to exalt her either because he knew what was coming. So one day he's teaching in a house and suddenly... Somebody comes to him and says, Master, teacher, uh, your mother and brothers are outside. They want to speak with you. And what did he say? He said, who are my brothers and who is my mother? All these who do the will of my Father in heaven, these are my brothers and my sisters and my mothers. He didn't say, my mom's outside. Oh, make way. You know, I mean, he didn't do that. He loved his mother, no doubt. Another time in Luke chapter 11 he's teaching and some woman in the audience just couldn't contain herself and she just blurted out, Oh, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. And Jesus said on the contrary, blessed is he who hears the word of God and obeys it. So he did everything in his power to not exalt Mary while not putting her down either. Now you say, well, then how did all this Mary worship come into being? Believe it or not, it goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel. You say, wait a minute, that's way before Mary was born. That's right. It goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel, the book of Genesis. The Tower of Babel was the center of occult worship at that time. In fact, the whole Tower of Babel was really uh, a, a, a tower that was to reach up into heaven. No, no, no. It was, a, it was like into the heaven so they could worship the stars of heaven. That's what it was all about. It was a cult worship. It all started at the Tower of Babel by a guy by the name of Nimrod who was married to a woman named Semiramis. They had a son named Tammuz. And Semiramis and Tammuz, when he got older, concocted this mother-child cult worship sect. And it spread throughout all of paganism. The Tower of Babel, that occult system moved to Babylon eventually. Babylon, the time of Daniel, was the center of occult worship. After that, it moved to Pergamus in Asia Minor. It was there for a while. In fact, when Jesus wrote to the church of Pergamos in Revelation chapter 2, he said, I know your works, and I know where you dwell, even where Satan's throne is. That was the center. And eventually, it moved to Rome about 275 or so BC, uh, AD. And it was embraced by the Romans. And then when Constantine came on the scene and had a so-called conversion experience in around 313 A.D., he wanted to make Christianity the state religion. And he realized he wasn't going to just be able to replace Christianity, uh, paganism with Christianity. The, 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 the people wouldn't stand for it. So he decided to kind of marry paganism with Christianity to co-mingle the two. So all of a sudden, Christianity got mingled with Roman Babylonianism. We see the mother Child goddess, child god in every pagan culture on the face of the earth. You'll see statues, you'll see uh, uh, drawings and depictions of a mother holding her child, and you see the what we would call a halo today. That was in paganism. It was the sun. These were the you know he was the sun god, and and it was just all, all this paganism got mixed into Christianity. Sambaramis became Mary her son Tammuz became Christ. They just substituted Mary and the baby Jesus for the pagan Semiramis and her son Tammuz. And so that's how it all got started. And that's how the church embraced this kind of this paganism and Christianized it. Nowhere do we see Mary exalted in the New Testament. Here they are praying with her, they're not praying to her. The angel, when he appeared to Mary and told her she was going to be the mother of the Messiah, he said, blessed are you among women, not blessed are you above women. So we have to be careful. Nowhere in the Bible is Mary called the mother of God, by the way. She's called the mother of Jesus here. You say, wasn't Jesus God? Yes, of course. But it's theologically incorrect to say that Mary is the mother of God. God didn't have a mother. Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was the incarnation of God. So she was the mother of Jesus in his humanity, but she's not the mother of Jesus in his divinity. Long before Mary was ever born, Christ already existed. He was always always there as the word of God, uh, eternal, along with the Father and the Spirit. So we just have to, you know, and I know that you know this, but it's good to be rem- reminded of it so that when you have a Catholic friend, who who has been taught all their life that it's it's right to worship Mary? You can say, well, you know that really isn't biblical, and here's why. You know, Mary is in the in the Catholic theology. They believe, and I was raised in the Catholic Church, so please, I'm not I, I was there. But Mary was uh, at one point the church began to claim that she was sinless. Mary, when she was told that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah, offered up a beautiful prayer of praise and thanksgiving called the Magnificat where she t- said that she was a sinner and in need of a savior. Only Christ is sinless. Mary's not sinless. The Catholic Church says that Mary never really died. She ascended into heaven, and she was seated and made the queen of heaven. Do You know, in Jeremiah and other places, God condemns the worship of the queen of heaven. It predated Mary by many thousands of years because it was paganism. S- Semiramis was called the queen of heaven. And so the Catholic Church embracing Babylonianism became, just made, just substituted Mary for Semiramis. And so we have to be careful here, right, that we don't, you know, look at Mary uh, in a way that uh, that's exalts her or would put her down. There is a church, I forgot where it is, so I think it's in Italy, and outside the church is a cross, it's a Catholic church. On one side of the cross, you see Jesus hanging. On the other side, you see Mary hanging. And this is how far some people have gone to wrongly exalt Mary, calling her co-redeemer, co-savior. It's blasphemy. And Mary, I'm, I'm totally convinced if she knows what's going on down here, is absolutely mortified because she would never want to compete with her Savior for his glory, Ever. So they were there with the other women, Mary, and with Jesus' brothers. Did Jesus have brothers? Yes. Yes. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, names them. There was James, there was Judas, there was Simon, and there was Joses. And Mary and Joseph had daughters, so Jesus had half sisters who are not named, but they went on to have a normal family after Jesus was born. Now, most of his family, if not all of his siblings, did not believe he was who he claimed to be. In fact, they thought he was nuts. That one time they came, and and, and somebody said, look, your mother and your brothers are out. They came to get him, because it's like, poor fellow, he's lost his mind. He's going around saying he's God and the Messiah and everything else. And Of course mary pondered these things in her heart but i'm not sure she fully grasped all of who he really was and so they they didn't believe in him and it wasn't until after he rose from the dead that we know at least two of his brothers got saved probably maybe the whole family i hope they did but we know at least two of his brothers got saved how do we know that because they went on went on to write books in the new testament the book of james was written by jesus half brother and the book of jude was written by judas also his half-brother. James went on to pastor the church in Jerusalem. So, yes, at least two of them received him as their Savior after he rose from the dead, but not before. Here we see them, though, and they're praying. So it says brothers, and we're hoping it was more than two, but uh, they're praying now. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, This scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. This is now, of course, Judas Iscariot. Who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Let me stop there. There are two very important things we need to see here. Peter, first of all, said in verse 15, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled. It shows us that Peter and the apostles had great confidence in the Word of God. They had great confidence in the authority of Scripture. And why was that? Because, he goes on to say, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, and so on. Peter and the other apostles believed two things about the Bible that we all need to believe. In fact, they're foundational to to our walk in faith. If we're going to have any kind of walk with God, two things have to be absolutely foundational. First of all, you have to believe that the Bible is inspired by God, that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. The word inspiration means God breathed. All Scripture. The word Scripture means the written word of God. God spoke it to 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 the prophets. They wrote it down prophets and apostles it became the scriptures and the scriptures because they are inspired by the holy spirit they cannot fail as peter said these things had to be fulfilled i'll tell you this if we read the scriptures if those two principles were buried in our hearts that we believe and i believe we do believe that the bible is inspired by god it's the it's it's, his holy word it's God-breathed, it's inspired, and because it's inspired, it cannot fail. See, the first part is no problem for us evangelicals. It's the second part. This is where the rubber meets the road, though, okay? It's, it's getting our, our faith from the, from the theological to the practical. That's where we often have a problem. We, we have no problem with the theological. We know the Bible is inspired by God. We know it's the Word of God. We believe that. It's bringing it down into our everyday lives where we sometimes stumble. We believe that if God said it, it's going to happen. There's no two ways around it. So if God makes me a promise in the Bible, it's as good as done. It has to be fulfilled. And I have a hard time with that. When the rent is due, and I don't know where the money's coming from because I've been out of work for a month, and there's no food in the cupboards, and I read about how God has promised to provide my needs and rent and food, I would say that's needs. And yet we waver at the promises of God through our own unbelief. That's sad. We need to have the same kind of faith that Peter had and said, look, these things had to be fulfilled. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, writing through David, said this was going to happen. Let's continue. Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who who arrested Jesus. And by the way, even though God knew what Judas was going to do, even though God prophesied about it through David, didn't mean that Judas was railroaded or forced into doing anything. Judas had a free will. Just because God knew what he was going to do and just because God wove it into his ultimate plan did not make Judas the fall guy, did not make Judas a puppet who had no choice in the matter that's wrong. Judas, of his own free will, became a guide to those who would be, you know, he betrayed Christ, to the chief priests and Pharisees and so on. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased the field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails, entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called in their own language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. First of all, verses 18 and 19 are in parentheses, which indicates that that's kind of Luke's commentary. He's kind of bringing his readers up to speed with regard to Judas. Uh, that's really not what Peter said. Uh, so, you know, he's quoting Peter, but then he puts a little parenthesis where Luke kind of, kind of lets his readers understand what happened with Judas. But don't misunderstand don't think there's a contradiction here because Matthew tells us that when Judas betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver at one point he began to have second thoughts he began to regret that and so he went back to try to give the money back to the chief priests and kind of undo this whole thing and they they weren't interested <laughs> he said hey we don't you know he said I betrayed innocent blood what, what does that does we don't care we don't care And so Judas took the money, threw it down on the temple floor, went out, and it says he hung himself. Well, here it says that he fell headlong and burst open in the middle, and his guts kind of fell out. That's no contradiction, guys. I mean, obviously what happened was that Judas found himself a tree with some branches that were uh, over a ravine or a gorge of some kind, threw a rope over one of the branches, tied it to his neck, jumped out over the gorge to hang himself and sometime maybe before he died or sometime after he died the branch broke and he fell down into the ravine if you've been to israel you know there are a lot of these ravines everywhere and they're loaded with all kinds of rocks big rocks and so he fell down his body fell and and uh, hit those rocks burst open and his guts came out and because that ravine was very near a field that was i guess for sale I guess the the chief priests and Pharisees decided, well, let's just take the money that Judas, we gave to him, and let's in his name purchase a a, a field where he died, bury him there, and we'll bury, bury all those who don't have money to bury themselves. A potter's field. And so that's what happened. There's no contradiction. So when it says that this man purchased the field with the wages of iniquity, Judas didn't personally purchase the field, but the wages of iniquity... Uh, was used to purchase the field I mean the blood money the money that he used he got for betraying christ was then used to buy this field after he died to bury him and all those who were too poor to have a proper burial they were also buried in this in this field and they called the field in the um, in the Aramaic akodama, which means field of blood or literally bloody field so that 's what was going on there but listen to this in verse twenty. Peter goes on, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Now you may read over that quickly, but let me just point something out. Peter just quoted from two Psalms. The first was Psalm 65, verse 25, the second was Psalm 109, verse 8. And as you read these you can re- you realize these are not earth-shattering verses. These are not life-changing verses like a John 3:16 or something else that you read and jumps off the page and hits you and go you go I got to memorize that. That's a life verse. These are kind of obscure, aren't they? What does this demonstrate? That Peter was no ignorant fisherman. He had a command of the scriptures. He was a Bible student. For anybody to, and this is before Pentecost too, you might say, well, the Spirit of God. Well, no, the Spirit of God had not been poured out yet. And this guy's quoting Scripture. I'm talking obscure passages, and he's putting them together. He's got the spiritual insight to connect the dots, as it were, because, you know, God's when he prophesies something, he oftentimes spreads it out over various prophets or different places in the Scriptures. And Peter was able to pick out which ones went together. This is a man of the Word. And it just says to me, look, it doesn't matter what profession you have. You don't have to be a pastor or an evangelist or a a professor of theology to be a student of the Word. And if God is going to use you in whatever ministry He's got planned, know this, start right now by knowing and learning the Word of God so that when God lays His hand on you and says, it's time, the work I've called you to do, it's time. You're ready. You've prepared yourself. Even as it says of um, Ezra, in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, I think, Ezra prepared his his heart to study the law of God. He prepared his heart. He purposed. He was going to be a student of the word, and God used him. So Peter was a man of the word. Therefore, Peter proposes now. Now, this is where I think Peter blows it, but i got to give him credit. He does know the word, okay? But it is before Pentecost. Uh, Verse 21, Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us in the ascension, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen, to take part in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. couple of things. They cast lots to discern the will of God. Well, if you read the Old Testament, you see that that was a common practice in the Old Testament for determining the will of God. We see it in many places. We see it in Joshua chapter 7, when Achan took some of the things that God forbid in the conquest of Jericho, hid them in his tent. Suddenly God turned against Israel. They began to lose the next battle. They couldn't figure out why. Joshua prayed and said, the Lord spoke to them and said there is sin in the camp. Gather all Israel together tomorrow and I will show you who it is. And so they began to cast lots. The lot fell on this one particular tribe. Then the tribe came forward. They cast lots again. A family was chosen. Then they cast lots again. A particular family in this large family was chosen. And then they cast lots again. And the lot fell on Achan. And God showed that he was the one who had caused the transgression. We see that there was other places. The book of Jonah. Jonah runs from God, gets on a ship going to Tarshish, right? Suddenly a great storm arises. God brings a storm. This is going on for many days. The sailors are terrified. They don't know what's going on. Finally, they begin to cast lots, and the lot fells on Jonah, right? And so God singled him out. So this is a practice that we see in the, in the Old Testament quite a bit. In fact, they would often inquire of the urim and the thummim to determine the will of God. What is that? Well, we're not quite sure. Uh, The words literally in the Hebrew mean lights and perfections. And some believe that they could have been a black stone and a white stone that were put into the uh, breast pouch of the high priest. And if a person came and wanted to inquire of God, they would ask a direct question, a yes or no question. Shall we go up to fight against our enemies? The priest would put his hand in the pouch pull out a stone if it was white the answer was yes If it was black the answer was no so the apostles are picking up on that no doubt in casting lots we see in the old testament when gideon wanted to discern the will of god he put the fleece out remember i think what the first time uh he said lord let the fleece be wet and the ground be dry in the morning he got up and the fleece was soaking wet And so he thought, well, wait a minute. Now, I don't know that much about fleeces. Maybe they attract moisture. So let's reverse this one more. Lord, just one more time. Tomorrow morning, let the fleece be dry and the ground be wet. Then I'll know this is your will. And so that's what happened. And so from that, we get a very common practice, even in the church today, of putting a fleece before the Lord, right? You say, is that wrong? I don't like the fleece God, okay? I don't like fleeces. And if you notice that after Pentecost you never see them casting lots you never see them putting a fleece before the lord in acts chapter 13 when they're gathered together in prayer suddenly it says the lord the holy spirit spoke saying to them separate to me paul and barnabas for the work which i have given them to do he said well how did the spirit speak probably through the gift of prophecy but we don't see them casting lots after Pentecost, and I think that there's a good reason for that. I don't think discerning the will of God through the casting of lots is something spirit-filled believers should practice. Why don't I like fleeces? I'm going to tell you why. Two reasons. First of all, as we see here, uh, they didn't cast, uh, put a fleece before God, but they cast lots. Same thing basically. Why don't I like this? Two reasons. First of all, it limits God. It limits God. Notice what they said there. They picked, they said they realized that Judas, Judas uh, was prophesied that he was going to be taken from the group and that his office or apostleship should be given to another. That was true. But I don't think it was God's timing yet. That's the second reason I don't like fleeces or casting a lots. First of all, it limits God. What they did was they picked two disciples that had been with them from the beginning who had been eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Two good men. And they said, Okay, now, Lord, which one of these two do you want see you're limiting god i think god they were acting properly in a sense god was going to replace judas but god wasn't ready to do that yet he was raising up somebody even as they were praying this prayer god had somebody else in mind who paul in the book of revelations we see the new jerusalem was built on a foundation of the 12 apostles I can't believe that Matthias is going to have his name on there. I, I think it's Paul. See, the problem with fleeces and these casting of lots and all, first of all, it limits God. Okay, I've got two job offers. I'm praying about a job. I've got two job offers. And so I say, okay, God, which one of these two do you want me to have? Here's how we're going to go about it. Next Tuesday, <laughs> if it rains. I will know to take job A. If it doesn't rain, I'll take job B. What am I doing? First of all, I'm limiting God. Maybe God has got a a job C out there that I have no—you know—that He's bringing. It's coming, but I am what? I'm limiting God. First of all, secondly, I'm putting God in my timetable. That makes me God. See, I'm—I'm turning myself into the Lord and God into my servant, and I'm saying God you've got to answer me by Tuesday. So Tuesday comes around and it rains in the morning and it's sunny in the afternoon. And I'm completely confused (laughs) because I don't know what's going on now. You know what? When you need to discern the will of God, get together some people that you trust are mature enough to pray with you, especially if it's something sensitive. And you begin to seek God. You begin to pray. Don't put a fleece before God. I don't like fleeces. Again, it limits God and it puts God on my timetable. And I have found that a lot of Christians have made decisions based on what they thought was an answered fleece, and it was disaster. And they couldn't figure out why God let them down. God didn't let you down. Uh, You you put yourself in a position that God never intended you to put yourself in. So, you know, that's my opinion. All right. Many commentators say, no, 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 no. Paul was not the twelfth apostle. He was apostle born out of due time as he said you know and and matthias you know there's no reason to doubt matthias wasn't the 12th apostle i mean so on and so forth i'm not going to argue the point because we can't be dogmatic but i just i just don't see that they acted in accordance with how spirit-filled believers should discern the will of god they weren't spirit-filled i think that if they would have waited until pentecost and then sought the lord he would have showed them somehow that there was another he had chosen he was preparing and to just wait god was going to fill that office i think churches do this sometimes they lose a pastor is a good man and they want to they feel the the need to go ahead and fill that office again because we need a pastor we need a pastor so they interview a few guys and say okay lord which one of these do you want and they choose somebody and and the guy is often a disaster just pray seek the lord don't rush things let god move in his time he'll take care of the church okay they'll the elders can step up. They will, you know, hold the church together. And if there's a it's a good, strong, praying church in unity, believe me, you're gonna have time to wait for the Spirit of God to bring the right leader in. This this was a, an important ministry. These apostles had quite an important ministry. The church was built on a foundation of apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Paul tells us. And so this was a very important ministry, and they really needed to to really seek God in prayer but and they did pray but again the lot casting of lots just bothers me I just see this me trying to be in control limiting God and putting him on my timetable so they cast lots and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the eleven and we don't hear any more about Matthias after that in all fairness to Matthias we don't really hear any more about the other apostles either except for Peter and John and Paul so, I can't be too strong with that either. But, you know, all of a sudden, a few years later, here we see Paul show up on the scenes. And what does he say? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. Yeah. Ah, there's the 12th guy. Here he is. See? Give God time to work, right? And he will work and do awesome things.